Hello, everyone. Welcome to this week's episode of Fandoms, Culture, and Perhaps a Few Murders, where we discuss exactly that, fandoms, culture, and perhaps a few murders. I am your host, Spade. With me, as always, is Feline. Hello. And Al. Hey, y'all. The topic of discussion is cursed media and or objects. So let's get to it. I will be presenting to you the curse of Minky Momo. In 1982, an anime called Magical Princess Minky Momo aired in Japan. It was an early entry in the magical girl genre of anime predating Sailor Moon by roughly a decade, which aired in 1992. It was a very popular show and thought to have helped influence the later Magical Girl shows that would follow. The show was popular enough to spawn a sequel series, films, crossovers, one with herself, and a music video. However, the most infamous episode is episode 46 of the first series. Prior to episode 46, Minky Momo was your standard Magical Girl anime. Momo was a princess from a planet of dreams, sent to Earth to help make people happy to prevent her home from drifting further away from Earth due to lost dreams and sadness. Pretty lighthearted, kid-friendly plot. And because the show was aimed at kids, there was merch to sell, primarily toys. Poppy, or Poppy, I'm not sure, was the company that was funding Minky Momo and responsible for manufacturing the merchandise and toys that would come. Poppy is also pretty popular or well-known for being or selling Chogokin toys, which were like these mech robots that were really popular. And they would go on to found Bandai as a subsidiary. So they were a notable company. So Poppy would go on, even though Minky Momo was pretty popular and doing well. It still wasn't good enough for Poppy, who decided to pull funding. In retaliation, a writer for the show, Takeshi Shudo, who would later work on the first and third Pokemon films, made a change to the plot of the next episode, episode 46. In this episode, Momo loses her powers and is prepared to face this challenge with a hopeful demeanor just before she gets struck by a car and dies. Not just any car, but a truck carrying toys that resembled some of the more popular toys from the Poppy Company. So they're really calling them out with this one. You can't really find the scene, but you can see like screenshots from around the scene where it shows her in the middle of the street, a car coming, and then the next shot is just a bunch of toys scattered across the road. Now, is this the first appearance of the infamous Isekai car? We don't know for sure. This shocking move was definitely a big F you to Popey, for sure. But what happened next is where the curse of Minky Momo begins. The day of the 46th episode of Minky Momo, where she dies, Four earthquakes hit Japan, all of which occurred in areas where episode 46 aired. Oh, shit. Rumors said that it was Mickey Momo's death that was so traumatic that the negative energy is what caused the quakes to occur. Now, if you thought that episode 46 with Momo's death and the quakes and them kind of pissing off the toy company would be the end of the show, you'd be wrong. Despite the writers killing off Momo, they were obligated to continue the show. So after dying, Momo is reincarnated as the true daughter of the human couple she had been living with while on Earth, and would simply continue her adventures as if nothing happened for another 17 episodes before the true ending with episode 63. When the final episode of Minky Momo aired on May 26 of 1983, the quote-unquote Sea of Japan earthquake struck with 104 casualties and leaving 324 people injured. At this point, five earthquakes had hit Japan, coinciding with Minky Momo, but it's not done yet. On January 15th of 1995, after Minky Momo's final episode was rerun on Japanese stations, 
The Kobe earthquake, aka the Great Hanshin Disaster, struck Japan with 6,000 casualties. That's a lot of bodies. <laughs> leaving 45,000 Japanese citizens homeless. Minky Momo was a popular anime series in Japan in the 1980s. And though it was very cutesy in tone, the writer's retaliation at their sponsor and toy maker Poppy had inspired darker themes to be added into Magical Girl shows, as well as a supposed curse attached to Momo's original series, which, coincidentally, doesn't seem to be able to be found anywhere anymore. Is this a part of the curse too, or an attempt to prevent it? Sounds like there was some burying. But would you say whether or not it's coincidental that there was a lot of these tragic occurrences around the time that the show was airing? Because you could say that, but it seems like there's way too many coinciding with it for it to, you know... Especially on certain episodes, like her death episode, mm. the final episode. And then several years later, when the episode was rerun. It repeated. Yeah, and worse. It's a lot of bodies attributed to one thing, yo, that's epic. Yeah, especially since, like, the way they went about it was, like, literally, it's very clear that it's kind of like a metaphor that the truck carrying the toys was the company killing the character. Like, her death was on their hands. Yeah, dude, that was definitely, like, ham-fisted. It wasn't subtle at all. <laughs> Another thing that maybe you could call a curse, too, or maybe an inevitability. The show, while it was aimed at young girls, also attracted a good amount of older male viewers. The male audience increased viewership by 10% and allowed the show to extend its run from the initial 50 episodes planned to 63 episodes. So Minky Momo, alongside with a fellow magical girl anime of the time called Creamy Mommy, are credited... Wait, you said what? What is it? Creamy Mommy. <laughs> okay. She's a magical girl, too. Of course. <laughs> she had a crossover episode with uh, Momo, too, and everything. But these two shows, which had been running around the same time, are credited as being the originators of the lollicon subgenre. And everybody loves lollies. Ain't that the truth? Wasn't there, like, an image of, like, a girl's head with, like, long black hair and artists created it and then people used that image as the Momo image from then on? Or am I mixing it up with something else? That's something else, but, but supposed it does have curse that, thing. It, okay. With like, you know, deep black eyes. Yeah. Right. That's what I was thinking of. And I was just like, I don't think it's the same thing. There was holes for the nose and maybe. Yes. Yes. And it was just like a neck. <laughs> it's just a neck and a head. Trying to do what would look, look like a duck beak face type of thing. Yeah. Yeah. It had like a pulled out face a little bit. Yeah. I know what you're talking about. All right. I, I wanted to make sure that it wasn't the same thing. Because when, when Feline was going into it, I realized it wasn't the same thing. But like the moment thing was attached. So I wanted to make sure that person wasn't associated with what she was talking about. But yeah. She's literally, if you look up pictures of her, she is like a young looking girl with a wand and pink hair and a headband. She's very, it's very much a cutesy show and definitely kid friendly now you mentioned it getting darker in the later series and i wonder if that's attributed to the 10 percent increase in the male population it definitely could be because i want to say that they were aware that they had gained some older viewers and tried to lean into it but for the most part the first series was overall lighthearted until the 46 episode where they killed her i could totally see other series that would have seen the increase in viewership for the show and the look because it seems like there's a lot of things that kick off in Japan real fast as soon as it looks fashionable or cutesy. Lots of female cosplayers are all over it and that's making it bigger. It was pretty popular. There was tons of merch. It was just popular and it's weird that the company cut it off, especially when they had so much merch. And it's also weird because 
basically the show was kind of sent everywhere except for America. They had one English dub that was sent to, I want to say it was Australia, I think. But none of it ever made it over here. What was the time? When was it? It first aired in 1982, then 1983. Oh, yeah. No. It re-ran in 1995. Yeah. If it was released in the 1980s, when they were sitting there barely putting out proper Sailor Moon cartoons. <laughs> I know, because I used to wake up at 5 o'clock in the morning just to do it on the weekends, just to watch them. And they edited some of those, too. Like, they took away some of the cleavage. The, the United States was barely allowing animated. There's no way there's going to be a proper dub crossover, especially after, like, you know, the episode where she got killed. They weren't having that. <laughs> <laughs> the U.S. would not be having that. So, yeah. Sent to literally, I want to say literally everywhere else but America, though. And the other versions, she was known as Magic Girl Gigi. Ah, uh, yeah. And it is interesting that you seemingly can't find the original series anywhere. Um, a YouTube video that I saw on this also mentioned that even though it's supposedly supposed to be on Amazon, when you click it, it's like all the links are dead. Yeah, no, it'd probably be in whatever you said it was be on Amazon, right? Yeah. Yeah, it would only be Amazon in certain areas like Amazon Japan or Amazon Australia or Amazon something else. I mean, Amazon America don't get shit. <laughs> I wonder if the rebranding of it when it got spread elsewhere is what kind of made a barrier from any other natural disaster, quote unquote, occurring at the time. Because if that shit came over here as its name, and then all of a sudden there was an earthquake on the West Coast or something outside of its normal occurrences, then maybe there'd be a lot more to sit there and say about, you know, a curse coming along with that. Yeah, and it was rumored or believed that generally, like, her spirit attached to the film was piss at the episode where she died. So anytime it aired, like, there'd be consequences. I call shenanigans. It must be the voice actress who was tired of having her paycheck taken from her. <laughs> He's such shenanigans. On a side note, I don't know much about this particular event, but supposedly there's like a Japanese song with an animated music radio that kind of talks about it. Though it's very loosely connected, there is a, I want to say, 14-year-old girl who might have been, I don't know if she was actually Japanese, but she had a Japanese username and she had Mickey Momo as her profile picture and she live streamed a suicide well, live streaming and suicide is always a taboo thing. Yeah. Again, obviously, I'm going to say it's outright connected. Not really, because who knows what was going on in her life. Like I said, I didn't find much information on it or look too deep. But it is one of the things that were kind of like a side note, because with the idea that there's a curse to Mickey Momo, her profile picture having that was kind of weird. Yeah. Mine is called The Crying Boy. In the 1950s, a painter by the name of Giovanni Bergolin the pen name of Bruno Amarillo, crafted a series of paintings titled The Crying Children. One painting in particular named The Crying Boy has gained internet infamy, so to speak, depicting of a small shaggy-haired boy, pouting, wide-eyed toddler with tears running down his face and had people of the UK in a panic. In September of 1985, the British tabloid paper, The Sun, claimed that undamaged copies of the painting were frequently found amidst remains of burnt houses. One in particular case involving Ron and Mary Hall, who claimed that their house had burned down the painting, the wall behind it, and some of the extended area around the painting remained untouched by the blaze, and they're blaming the picture for the cause of the fire. A firefighter by the name of Alan Wilkinson said he knew of numerous cases where some paintings was the only unscathed object to survive fires in other numerous houses. 
The son, now receiving an influx of calls from both scared owners of a copy of the painting and owners with their own stories, was loving the scandal. A woman named Dora Mann stated her house burned down six months after purchasing the painting, claiming all other paintings she had owned were destroyed except for the crying boy. One person claimed after acquiring the painting, her child got his private parts stuck on a hook. Another claimed that her husband and three sons have all died since she got the painting in 1959. With fire brigade representatives claiming there's no cause for alarm, but adding in that the incidents were becoming more frequent, panic began to grow. The son offered to take the cursed paintings off the people's hands, and suddenly they had over 2,500 print-slash-copies of The Crying Boy, and they decided to destroy the paintings via a large bonfire. Rumors still last to this day of both the painting's curse and its possible origin story. According to rumors, the boy in the painting was a Spanish street urchin called Don Bonillo, whose parents had died in a fire. No one wanted the boy. Wherever he stayed, fire would start. An artist painted him, but the studio burned down. Years later, an unidentified body was found in the ruins of a charred vehicle. The name on the license was Don Bonillo. People today still believe in the curse and those who own a copy and don't know what to do with it are worried. One person states that they hang it in a cupboard facing the wall. Another claimed that they're so afraid to trash it because they had found it in their deceased parents' home that when they brought it home, their wife refused to let them keep it there. So they have to have it in the garage. And they're worried that it's going to, that something might happen if they try to throw it away. Kind of like an exorcist thing where if you throw the, the possessed toy away, it'll come back in some form or another. Hmm. So what they do is they have it sitting in the garage surrounded by fire extinguishers. So that's a plan. Right. <laughs> if you feel like tempting fate, you can get your own copy on some Australian websites and Gumtree itself. Currently going for around $165. So would you like to sit there and get a cursed painting for your house? Go on Gumtree. You too can burn down your house. Right. You too can have the fear of curses in your home. But yeah, mine doesn't have nearly as many bodies associated with it as felines is. But a burnt house is still a scary thing to worry about. That was another thing I was thinking about. The hands that hold him for a painting. It's a painting of a boy with a doll that's almost life-size. It's about the boy's shoulder and the boy's about, a, um, I'd say, maybe seven or eight years old. And behind him is a multi-paneled glass door. And in the background of the glass door, you can see hands pressing against the wall from the other side. But um, it doesn't have as interesting a mythos behind it because it itself is just seen as possibly moving around. There was a, there was a rumor that um, it's seen that the doll is forcing the boy out of the picture with a gun. But people are always worried about inanimate objects moving around when they're not looking at it. But <laughs> no one provides any proof of anything like that. It's still a very daunting picture to look at. But in and of itself, it didn't have very much good lore behind it. So I didn't choose it. Not to concern anyone. <laughs> I've heard of that painting. I've looked at it, not in person, of course, but like through online images. And for some reason, it lives in the back of my mind. Like it's very haunting. And I don't know if it's concerning that something that's kind of has an eerie background kind of occurs in my mind every so often. <laughs> It is a daunting picture to look at, though. It is well done, but it's a daunting picture to look at. Having read about it, I, like this, the story of the painting is, is the doll is meant to be a traveler 
to help move the boy through like a dream type of world. And the hands behind the mirror are it's the, the possible futures of the child reaching out. And then subsequently, the person who originally created it, I think, passed away, but somebody else had commissioned subsequent photos for it. So there's other uh, like paintings involved in that series because it's, then it's the hands that embrace him or something like that. And it's like the, the hands that release him or something like that. And he, each one depicts the boy in a different age. And then the last one is just a gaping hole with like branches and stuff going into what looks like a fireplace. But it's meant to be the place where the boy used to be, but it's meant to also symbolize death. But like those other paintings don't have as much as an association with creepiness because people are seeing that the hands move. Sometimes the boy is gone. Sometimes the doll is gone. Sometimes um, one person admitted that they saw the boy in the house with the doll. Oh, that's a problem. Right. <laughs> but other times people, it's mostly like the hands are either more or less, or it seems like the hands are on the other side of the glass. I believe that a lot of what makes paintings of that era kind of stand out for people and be haunting and be a little different, and especially this one versus its later sequels done by other people, is that usually oil-based paintings can capture color vibrantly and make eyes seem a lot more 3D-ish almost. Right. It's almost like one of those things like a scotoma. If you're walking from one angle to another, it looks like the eyes are following you, though obviously they're not really moving. Or are they? <laughs> I like those, those visual effects, though. Like you, you can sit there and make something that's eyes follow you. Yeah. Oil and canvas, usually, the way that a lot of masterpieces have been made, usually tend to need restoration and care to, you know, be able to exist without damage through the years. But the way that they used to paint things then really stuck out, especially when it was pictures of, I want to say, usually children or deities like think of leonardo da vinci's works usually stick out pretty well because of the type of oil and, and materials he used to paint his mm. a paint i like that granted it has context for which i like it is the painting of ophelia i don't know who it's by but it is an animal crossing <laughs> And it's supposed to depict Ophelia from the story of Hamlet, who she dies and it's described after Hamlet kills her father. It's described that she kills herself by like walking into a lake and she just kind of lets herself drown. It's like she's so miserable that she just lets it happen. She looks peaceful. Yeah. She was having a freaking mental breakdown and the whole had a whole scene where she was scrubbing imaginary blood off of her hands. She was mentally gone. So the painting just shows like a woman's body lying in water and it's very floral, very pretty, very serene. Almost reminds me of a Monet painting since there's a lot of those blues and greens and watery hues that he's usually known to paint. Yeah, I can't remember off the top of my head who it was, but that's a painting I like for a similar kind of hauntingness due to the background, even though itself is very visually pretty. Mm -hmm. All right. So next is Am I the Asshole? And you guys' options are... Sister, kids, or surrogate? Surrogate. All right. Am I the asshole for not letting the surrogate family touch my stomach and feel the baby move? So I, 24 female, am currently six months pregnant as a surrogate for a family. Everything has been smooth sailing for the most part throughout this process other than one thing. Even when I was pregnant with my daughter, I could not stand people touching my stomach. I don't understand the obsession with people touching pregnant women's bellies. But it bothers me when people try to do it. Anyways, the family I'm surrogating for has asked multiple times if they can touch my stomach and rub it and feel the baby move and kick. The wife stating that she's always wanted to experience feeling the kicking and moving baby. 
Now, for context, she can fully have children of her own. This surrogacy is a choice they made so as not to interfere with her career by being pregnant. She has a physically demanding job and doesn't want to risk anything happening to the baby or her career. She's a personal trainer. They have been constantly asking to touch my stomach, and I always politely decline as it's uncomfortable for me. Well, while me and wife were at baby appointment, last week she reached over and rubbed my stomach while talking to the doctor. I kindly asked her to stop touching my stomach, and she snapped at me and said I was ruining the experience for her. And it's her baby. She should be able to feel her kick. I snapped back and said, it may be her baby, but it's my body. And if that's what she really wanted to feel her baby kick, she should have gotten pregnant herself. I've gotten calls from her and her husband calling me an asshole for yelling at her for wanting to feel her child. My friends and parents are split on whether I am the asshole or not since it's their baby. So am I the asshole? That's kind of a split thing. I think it's kind of hard to pick which side is or isn't. Both have their merits. I mean, she's doing them a favor by helping the woman to maintain her career and not disproportion her body and be put out of commission for maternity leave. So that way her career can continue to grow and flourish, however successful she may be. So while that's understandable and she wants to be able to feel a baby growing, especially when she knows it's her and her husband, just in somebody else's oven that I get that you'd want to be able to do that. But also at the same time, you did make a conscientious choice to have a surrogate and you have to respect that surrogate's needs and wants because honestly, if you stress her out, you're now going to bring undue stress on your baby by default. I myself do not like to be touched. Max. It's though you can understand the want. It is ultimately someone else's body that you're touching. You're not touching your baby. You're touching a woman who I don't know how well they knew each other beforehand, but... Or if she's even being compensated for this. I I would hope so to some degree. If she's not like friends with them, it doesn't sound like. But like, it's her body and I get it. You want to do all that baby shit, but you need to be respectful of her personal existence because she's just carrying your child for now. And if you did want to do it because you can have kids, though you don't want to mess up your career, which of course is understandable, you need to respect the person who you burdened. Like, I, I can't fathom just letting people touch me at all especially specifically me i have a kind of weird thing where i don't like people touching my belly button the last time someone tried a glass broke in my sister's hand and she needed surgery hilarious people like actively try to touch just specifically your belly button i just didn't say that that's funny as fuck i don't like it i'm pretty sure if like a belly button piercing thing were ever happened i'd probably pierce them instead That's hilarious. I don't like it. That's awesome. Having having been an actual surrogate myself, I can certainly say I don't like being touched either. Unless it's by somebody I care about or I know it's somebody that needs the hug, like my kid or, you know, like a nephew or a niece or something like that. And I get it. But if it's a first time experience for them, they're going to take every moment that they can. I already had my moment. The zippity is out of the doodah. So like the, the enthusiasm isn't there for me. So I understand for them, it's a brand new experience, but for the woman, she's missing out on a, on a feeling that she's not feeling internally. And that's part of the, the motherhood experience when you're pregnant. There's, there's a feeling that you get with the baby inside that's just weird. So, and, and people know that they're missing out on a sensation, so that person wants to feel it from the outside. I would suggest to the poster that they're not the asshole, but neither is the, the surrogates because they want to have this experience with you. That's the reason why they're there. They're going through this with you, but they also want a tangible feeling on their end. So I get it. What I would have suggested to the OP 
is have one occasion where she because you can feel when you have the baby in you when the baby's active so if you're big enough to feel the bumps on the feel the kicks on the outside let them feel it once let them get that experience let them get the sensation let them get the endorphins and the dopamines from it and then push on and tell them we need to have a conversation about boundaries and personal space from now on blowing up at them was unnecessary but when you're pregnant your emotions all over the place i like when i was pregnant i watched i rewatched an anime for like you know the nostalgic dopamine hits or whatever and i've never cried during it ever out of the 20,000 times that i've watched this particular anime and while pregnant i watched it i was like <laughs> sobbing like a fiend for no freaking reason when i've never felt those emotions before with this anime so her blowing up might have only been enhanced by the baby because of all the frequency of the emotions i feel like they should have a sit down talking but like listen we need touch boundaries it's getting the later half of this pregnancy and the baby's going to be more mobile i don't like to be touched you want to touch me we'll have a conversation about it i'll tell you when the baby's kicking you can feel it then but don't just reach out and touch my stomach like you're petting a fucking cat see that's what i was going to say like her blowing up might have been again influenced by the fact that she is pregnant and all the previous incursions they've touched her too yeah that right could be possibly you know more easily agitated while she's pregnant but at the same time if she's verbally told you over and over again and she specifically did it anyway you are in knowingly going against her wishes right and at the same time i feel like these are conversations you should have had when picking your surrogate like talking about all of this ahead of time so i don't know on whose part that would be a failing but she said for her own child that she didn't like being touched at that point so if that's something she knows maybe they didn't know but it's at least it's not like it's unfair right when i was a surrogate I was literally for my best friend and they knew how I was about touching. So they would ask for permission in advance, but there was also a conversation about, all right, are you coming to me with me to these appointments? How would you like to act in this appointment? What kind of, what kind of behavior are you go like is going to be happening with us there? What kind of questions are you going to have? Do you want to touch the baby at certain times? Do you want to feel the baby kick? These are, it's a communication issue here at this point. And I feel like there needs to be a proper sit down talk because by now the baby, it's already, it's already a baby. You can't be starting having fights with each other because it will make no sense. Y'all have to live with each other until you have to deal with each other until this baby is born. And then y'all never have to see each other again, depending on how, whatever they have contracted or whatever, you know what I'm saying? So like at this point, it's just a communication issue. They both need to set boundaries. They desire and find a middle ground. I don't think there's any asshole in this point, but I think there's abundance of emotions from both ends on different spectrums. One is the the, the woman going through it and not wanting to have to deal with it and having her own personal boundaries crossed and then having the surrogates want to have this experience they want to feel the baby they want to have these firsts because that's what that first baby is it's a whole row of firsts and you don't want anybody to ruin this experience for you and when somebody takes away a first for something that's yours you get pissed off about it like i'm having a wedding you don't sit there and come to my wedding and announce your engagement to somebody else i'm gonna fuck you up you don't come to my wedding and announce a pregnancy i'm gonna fuck you up so it needs to be like communication and shit going down and also to spade's point the fact that she made it sound granted it's from her perspective but the fact that she made it sound that they were like calling or texting her harassing her calling her an asshole isn't exactly a great thing to do granted you'd be upset of course because you're kind of in a way being denied access to a childbirth experience but if you do care about this child enough that it upsets you you probably shouldn't stress her out by harassing her calling her an asshole like you can feel that way but communicate it better because she is holding the baby 
within her and that stress will impact your child. Right. On this corner of the universe, in Marvel news, there's rumors or report that says that Star Wars Cassian Andor actor Diego Luna is rumored to be up for Mr. Fantastic. Wait, who? Diego Luna from the Andor Disney Plus series as well as Star Wars Rogue One. Diego Luna. I'm going to have to look him up. I don't know who that is. Okay, I see his face. He's meant to be who? Mr. Fantastic. Uh, I don't see that for his face. Like, I don't see him for his face. Seeing in the direction that Marvel seems to be going, Isa Gonzalez, who was recently in Hobbs and Shaw and was the paramedic in the Jake Gyllenhaal movie Ambulance, is up to be Sue Storm. Oh, I know her face. Also, it's reported that agents for Elvis star Austin Butler has him up to be the Human Torch. Oh, oh yeah, he did. I I liked him in Elvis. They they were heavy on the eyeliner, but I get it. That's what it was meant for for the screen. But you said he's gonna be who? Human Torch. I don't mind that. I don't mind that. All you, I mean, all you have to really be is kind of hunky. Yeah, kind of douchey. <laughs> so like, he looks like he has douchey on lock. So that's why. <laughs> he looks like he could do douchey. He looks douchey, so. Not anything against him, I'm just saying, for the role, he looks like he could cover douchey. Just like, um, what's his face from La La Land could, looks like he can cover douchey. The main actor, the main dancer or whatever from La La Land. Ryan Gosling? Yes, he looks like he could pull off douchey, like, really well. Of course he does. Yeah, so, like, I mean, but like, he's still a good actor, very attractive, but he still looks like he could pull off douchey, so, yeah. The previous Human Torch actor and, you know, much more popular as Captain America, Chris Evans. Yes. One of the infamous Chris's. Because he's very douchey. Him as Human Torch and then him in Scott Pilgrim as the... One of the evil exes. Yeah, the evil exes who was an actor who was very full of himself. Man. Yeah. Don't forget not another teen movie where he did the whole whipped cream on the titties. <laughs> I feel like those two roles particularly always made me think that for like a live action Mortal Kombat movie to be done again, he would make a great Johnny Cage. Yeah. Like, literally, be Johnny Cage. Like, those two roles combined, he's Johnny Cage. I'd watch Jean-Claude Van Damme as a Johnny Cage, to be honest. Just not with that hella thick accent he refuses to squash out. Because Johnny Cage is an American douche. (laughs) Yeah. But I also, like, aesthetically, I feel like Chris Evans had the look. Yeah. He was basically playing a very on-the-nose, full-himself actor in Scott Pilgrim. You know, him doing a ninja mime thing. You're right. It would be good. Every year, the Library of Congress adds to their National Film Registry movies that are considered culturally, historically, or aesthetically significant. And I'd say the number probably varies, but this year there's 25 entries in total. Chief among them were Iron Man, since it's marked the start of the superhero dominance at the box office and kicked off the Marvel Cinematic Universe. The Little Mermaid that kicked off the Disney Renaissance that went through from the 90s to the end of the century. 1989's romantic comedy when Harry met Sally took a while for that one, didn't it? Just, I just, I didn't like the movie my personally myself. It wasn't my cup of tea. I'm not into like romantic comedies like that. And I didn't like. I found the her trying to orgasm in that lunch scene very embarrassing and uncouth. That's always spotlighted the most because you know it was probably very risque. Yeah, for that time frame, which is odd to say. Right, but like back then. X-rated stuff are like now our level rated stuff nowadays because X-rated was what you'd get above our rating back then. So like our our whole like mentality has changed when it comes to stuff like that. And that whole scene was just it was distasteful to me. <laughs> I don't know. I'm not a very like you know that was Sue and Q's type of person, but like 
I just felt like that scene was unnecessary. The director's mother was the woman who was in the scene who said, I'll have what she's having. What she was having is a fake orgasm. As long as you've been alive, you faked a couple. So you've already had what she's having. Yeah, but apparently, given her age, not in a long time. <laughs> the 1990 comedy House Party also got added. Aren't they doing a remake of that or something like that? Or already did a remake? But it was like at LeBron James's house or something like that, right? Yep. Yeah. Yeah, okay. I don't mind House Party. I feel like House Party or Friday would be a good movie to include there. But yeah, that's not bad. 1976's Carrie was also added. That's good. It's been long regarded as one of the greatest horror movies ever made and was the first of more than a hundred different film and TV adaptations of Stephen King's works. With a ton of practical effects that just worked so well, not just for its time, but decades later. People are still comparing the new age one to the old age one and picking the fucking original. Also this week, Fortnite developer Epic Games has agreed to pay the largest penalty ever obtained for violating an FTC rule. Ooh. Also, the largest refund amount ever given in a gaming case for a total of $540 million. Get them. $275 million for violating children's privacy law and $245 million in refunds for tricking users into making unwanted purchases. Mm, that is super fucked. The FTC says that Epic deployed design tricks that are colloquially known as dark patterns in their user interface that would be carefully designed to dupe users to purchase overpriced insurance on purchases or sign up for recurring bills. The developer will be required to adopt strong privacy default settings for kids and teens making sure voice and text communication is set to off by default. So them owning up to paying such a high price means that they acknowledge that they deliberately made money in uncouth ways. And especially with kids and teens who yeah, probably target. just, yeah, where, you know, it's almost like all the um, loot box conversation where kids are just tapping stuff and not knowingly paying attention to what they're purchasing and then trying to say who's to blame. But also like secretly signing them up for hidden bills. That's fucked. And you design the interface and make it look like they weren't buying something with real money at first. And isn't this funny because weren't they the ones making a big fuss about, you know, Apple not treating them fairly and all that? Weren't they also in a battle with other people, with other dancers and stuff that created dances because they were taking them, put it in the game and then charging people to like buy the dance and then not dishing out the money to the original dance creators? Yeah, there was the kid who was the creator of the floss or whatever. The flossing did. Uh, okay, I feel like... The Carlton dance was also part of that. Mm -hmm. And I don't know if he ever got money, but I know he did try. Yeah, he did try. I can't say that I recall what occurred and the outcome of that. It, who knows? It's probably pending still. Also, the National Archives and Records Administration released 13,173 documents related to the Kennedy assassination. Ooh. More than 70% of the previously released documents that were already released in redacted form are now unredacted. This latest release marks that 97% of the roughly 5 million pages have been made available to the public. However, the government still withholds and redacts some info that was recently released this week, as well as still withholding a small percentage of documents that they say may cast the CIA and other agencies in a negative light. Convenient. However, some documents have still remained unredacted and or unreleased, like a lot of JFK pundits want to know what Oswald's activities were in Mexico City in the weeks leading to Dallas, or the potential reorganization of the CIA that was mentioned in a Kennedy memo between he and his secretary. So if they were looking to reshuffle the CIA and the CIA didn't want to change how things were, kind of makes it look a bit suspicious there. Hmm, sure does. Now, under the 
Kennedy Assassination Records Collection Act of 1992, the government was required to release all documents related to the assassination by October of 2017, unless doing so would harm national security or intelligence sources or violate certain privacy protections. Then President Donald Trump released thousands of documents over the course of his presidency, but withheld other ones on national security grounds. In October of 2021, President Biden released nearly 1,500 more documents while delaying the release of other sensitive records until December 15th, 2021. Saying further review was necessary to quote unquote protect against identifiable harm to the military defense, intelligence operations, law enforcement, or the conduct of foreign relations. The archives said last year that any information currently withheld from public disclosure that agencies do not propose for continued postponement beyond December 15th will be released, which left open the possibility that federal agencies could seek to further delay the unveiling of the remaining outstanding records. We need to delete incriminating stuff, y'all. Right. Now, his executive order sets a deadline of May 2023 for the agencies to propose and review all redactions not beyond June 30th. He said, let's just make sure. Let's delay it. Even if it is the truth. (laughs) I think people have gotten to the point of whatever the fuckness that you can tell us if aliens exist. You can tell us if you found like a spaceship piece that came into our, our atmosphere that survived the atmosphere drop and the burning and re-entry into our atmosphere that had some shit on it that wasn't explained by normal means. At this point, everybody would think it was conspiracy anyway. Right. People don't believe shit at all. Exactly. Even if it happens right in front of them. Right. That and I feel like going back to like how people will make conspiracies out of anything for the people who are very like blindly left or right without like, you know, any kind of openness. That shit makes you think of like that movie Don't Look Up where like you can have information warning you for your own protection and you have people either vehemently denying it for whatever their beliefs are or trying to make it out to some conspiracy against the opposing side just because they want to like, you know. It doesn't line up with their plans. Yeah. Exactly. Gaslighting is is now the main theme of the United States is at this point in time. And the rest of the world, we're more open to shit now than we were back then. When a lot of the stuff had to be kept from the public because they were just too sensitive and couldn't handle it. And I think it's we're, we're at a certain point in our generation or our, our lives or however big or small you want to count it. We're able to handle shit a little bit more serious now. Now that wraps it up for this week's episode. So we wish you a Merry Christmas and a Happy New Year. I want to say everyone a happy Christmas, Hanukkah, Kwanzaa, and a happy holidays to everybody who's listening and you guys, of course. Um, since there's so many holidays happening between November and January, you want to cover the board. I also want to sit there and thank everybody for listening. And I want to give a shout out to people in Russia because apparently more people in Russia listen to us. And I think that's cool. We appreciate the cold people out there. We will be preempted for the Christmas holiday. So by the time that the next episode comes on, it will be in the new year. You can listen to us on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, and other podcast platforms. If you like the show, please follow us on, on your preferred platform. You can leave us questions and comments or shoot us an email, fandomsculturemurder at gmail.com. Until next time. Peace out. Stay safe and all that jazz.